Scholars tend to demand clear and irrefutable evidence for the existence of democratic institutions of any sort in the distant past. It's striking how they never demand comparably rigorous proof for top-down structures of authority. These latter are usually treated as a default mode of history, the kind of social structures you would simply expect to see in the absence of evidence for anything else. It is important to stress that we are not arguing that the very first cities to appear in any region of the world were invariably founded on egalitarian principles. In fact, we will see shortly a perfect counterexample. What we are saying is that archaeological evidence shows that to have been a surprisingly common pattern, which goes against conventional evolutionary assumptions about the effects of scale on human society. In each of the cases we've considered so far, Ukrainian megasites, Uruk, Mesopotamia, the Indus Valley, a dramatic increase in the scale of organized human settlement took place with no resulting concentration of wealth or power in the hands of ruling elites. In short, archaeological research has shifted the burden of proof onto those theorists who claim causal connections between the origins of cities and the rise of stratified states, and whose claims now look increasingly hollow. David Graeber and David Winkler. Hello and welcome back to Everyday Anarchism, the show that finds anarchism, cooperation, non-domination, and mutual aid in your everyday life. I am your host, Graham Colbertson. Today's episode is, as promised, about the book The Dawn of Everything by David Graeber and David Wingrow. This is a book that reaches back, as far back as they can, in human history and tries to replace the story of how we got to where we are in the 21st century, which is mostly a thought experiment, with a new story, one which is actually based on anthropological and archaeological evidence. I am sure that people are going to be contesting the claims of this book for years, if not decades. And actually, I'm going to try and have some experts come on the show and talk about some of the specific claims made in the book about certain places. But let's just say, in the grand sweep of things, this is a new way of thinking about humanity, and it is one that I personally find amazing. Okay, so first, the title, The Dawn of Everything. When my mom saw that title, she laughed. And actually, I think this title is a little bit of a joke, The Dawn of Everything. Because here's the deal. There are these books written like this that explain everything. One of them, which has sold millions and millions of copies, is called Sapiens, meaning, you know, humans. It purports to tell you about everything in humanity. Another one is called Guns, Germs, and Steel. Why does the world look the way it does? Well, it is simply because of guns, germs, and steel. No decisions humans ever made had anything to do with anything. It's just things turned out the way they had to turn out. It's just science. These narratives are oversimplistic, frankly fatalistic, and also dumb. 
So Graeber and Wingrow wrote a book like that, an airport book, the dawn of everything. You're a busy CEO. Why don't you learn everything about human history in one book? And then they wrote it in an exactly opposite way, where they make all these sweeping claims and then back them up with specific evidence instead of the ridiculous just-so stories that you normally get in that genre of book. Here's the fundamental claim of the dawn of everything. The fundamental claim of the dawn of everything is that humanity has developed in a bunch of different ways, down a bunch of different roads, done a bunch of different things, which seems obvious, doesn't it? But that's not how history is written. History is written, as you heard in that opening quote, like everything is moving towards exactly how things are the way they are right now. Why do you learn about the past? To explain how today happened. This is called predicting the present. So what does that mean? That means when you go to the past, the only thing you find is the present. They wanted to find alternatives. Now, let me give you the standard narrative. I've taught this many times. Um, here's, here's the narrative. It's a story of progress or perhaps of the fall of man. Either way, it doesn't matter. It's the same story. So in the beginning, people just wandered around, you know, no clothes, loincloths, eating fruit, whatever. These people were natural. They lived in a state of nature. They weren't really different from animals. Then something happened. Civilization got invented. What civilization? Uh, it's farming, writing, cities. And then to organize the farming and the cities... You've created writing, you create bureaucracy, hierarchy, poverty, slavery. Now, was it good that civilization was developed? Well, according to Rousseau, no, it was bad. But now that you have created cities, you need the bureaucratic state to manage them. According to Hobbes, on the other hand, it was good that civilization happened. His state of nature is not a Garden of Eden, which is what Rousseau's is, but is the war of all against all, or anarchy. These two people are traditionally opposed to one another, Rousseau and Hobbes. But Graeber and Wingrow argue they have the exact same narrative. In the beginning, there were hunter-gatherers, and it was all equal. A good equality, according to Rousseau, or a monstrous equality of violence, according to Hobbes. Then civilization happened, which was a big advance or a big devolution, depending on whether you ask Rousseau or Hobbes. And now all that's left is the state, perhaps the nation state, and there's nothing you can do about it. The end, the end of history. And since most people who argue about civilization take out of the Hobbesian side or the Rousseauian side, these aren't real arguments. It's just assumed before the argument starts that the current forms of government are inevitable and unchangeable. So how do we get outside? I took three really big things away from this book. The first one is what Graeber and Wingrow call the indigenous critique and its role in this narrative of civilization. The second one is the three freedoms, the freedoms most people had most of the time. And the third one is the three forms of dominance, the different ways, Graeber and Wingrow argue, the people have used over and over again to take away the three basic freedoms. Okay, I'll explain what those all mean as we go along. Let's start with the indigenous critique. 
So if we want to have a different world, it will really help us to see some examples of a different world, to get outside of our current system. Where do people find this? They go to the Amazon rainforest or various other primitive peoples and see, oh, look, we found these people. They're living different lives. They could be an alternative. But we don't actually consider them alternatives, do we? We consider them a less evolved form of society. We call them uh, traditional societies. That's one of the more polite ways. You can call them primitive. You can call them savages, which is actually drawn from the French sauvage, which means wild. So it's not the idea they're savage, like they're murdering, but they're wild. They don't actually have civilization. You can call them hunter-gatherers, etc. All of them mean these people are living different lives from us, but not just different lives from us, older lives, expired lives, obsolete lives. If you are in a, quote, savage society, you are living in the past. First of all, besides the obvious fact that that is not true, the place you want to look for the past is not in people alive today. It's in the past. And you've got to go back beyond the Enlightenment, which is when the Europeans started explaining how their system ultimately had to be the only system. And Graeber and Wingrow make this amazing argument. The ideas of the Enlightenment, the ones that challenged the Western world and then were ultimately defeated, came from the Americas. They spend a lot of time talking about Kondiaronk, who was a Windat chief and intellectual whose ideas were shared with the world by Baron Lahontan, the Frenchman who spoke to him and then wrote his words down in a dialogue uh, in which uh, the savage he's talking to, Adario, which is actually Condoronk, that's his real name, Adario is the made-up name, offered all of these crushing defeats of Western society, and Lahontan just has to agree that he is right. Here's Graeber and Wingro on Kondiaronk, and then a quote from Kondiaronk. In conclusion, Kondiaronk swings back to his original observation. The whole apparatus of trying to force people to behave well would be unnecessary if France did not also maintain a contrary apparatus that encourages people to behave badly. That apparatus consisted of money, property rights, and the resultant pursuit of material self-interest. And here's a quote from Kondiaronk, and I should say I have no idea how to pronounce this name. I have spent six years reflecting on the state of European society, and I still can't think of a single way they act that's not inhuman. And I genuinely think this can only be the case as long as you stick to your distinctions of mine and thine. I affirm that what you call money is the devil of devils, the tyrant of the French, the source of all evils, the bane of souls and slaughterhouse of the living. To imagine one can live in the country of money and preserve one's soul is like imagining one could preserve one's life at the bottom of a lake. Money is the father of luxury, lasciviousness, intrigues, trickery, lies, betrayal, insincerity, of all the world's worst behavior. Fathers sell their children, husbands their wives, wives betray their husbands, brothers kill each other, and all because of money. In light of all this, tell me that we Windat are not right in refusing to touch or so much as to look at silver. So to me, this sounds not so much like uh, Rousseau or Voltaire, uh, 
but like Godwin or Proudhon, the founders of anarchism. Now, you might be asking, if this guy, Kondiaronk, founded anarchism in the 17th century, shouldn't I have heard about it? There's an answer to that, too. Back to Graeber and Wingro. Most criticism of Lahontan's work simply assumes, as a matter of course, that the dialogues are made up, and that the arguments attributed to Adario, the name given there to Kondiaronk, are the opinions of Lahontan himself. In a way, this conclusion is unsurprising. Adario claims not only to have visited France, but expresses opinions on everything from monastic politics to legal affairs. In the debate on religion, he often sounds like an advocate of the deist position that spiritual truth should be sought in reason, not revelation. Embracing just the sort of rational skepticism that was becoming popular in Europe's more daring intellectual circles at the time. Okay, so this guy can't be real, is the argument. Why? He's too smart and too good of a speaker, and he sounds too much like a European. But there's an answer for that, too. Here's another quote. In recent decades, however, indigenous scholars returned to the material in light of what we know about Kondiaronk himself and came to very different conclusions. The real-life Adario was famous not only for his eloquence, but was known for engaging in debates with Europeans of just the sort recorded in Lahontan's book. As Barbara Alice Mann remarks, despite the almost unanimous course of Western scholars insisting the dialogues are imaginary, quote, there is excellent reason for accepting them as genuine. First, there are first-hand accounts of Condiorant's oratorical skills and dazzling wit. Father Pierre de Charlevoix described Condiorant as so, quote, naturally eloquent that no one perhaps ever exceeded him in mental capacity. An exceptional council speaker, he was not less brilliant in conversation in private, and councilmen and negotiators often took pleasure in provoking him to hear his repartees, always animated, full of wit, and generally unanswerable. He was the only man in Canada who was a match for the governor, Comte Frontenac, who often invited him to his table to give his officers this pleasure. Okay, that's the end of the uh, quote from Father Pierre. Back to Graeber and Wingro. During the 1690s, in other words, the Montreal-based governor and his officers, presumably including his sometime deputy, Lahontan, hosted a proto-enlightenment salon where they invited Condiaronk to debate exactly the sort of matters that appeared in the dialogues and in which it was Condiaronk who took the position of rational skeptic. So this guy was a legendary speaker and thinker. He participated in European debates and he learned all about Europe. So when he was written down by a European, he sounds like a European. I don't know if I'm completely convinced by this account by Graeber and Wingrow, but I read a lot of 17th century thinkers. They don't sound like this. Condiaronk feels more like an 18th or 19th century anarchist. So it seems to me more likely that he truly was a brilliant, brilliant thinker coming from a different tradition and that this Baron Lahontan made up someone who had Kropotkin's ideas 300 years before Kropotkin. Now, here's the kicker for the indigenous critique. If this is true, and Kondiaronk actually did come up with these ideas, then the Enlightenment didn't start in Europe. The Enlightenment started with American intellectuals, the Windots, the Hurons, other people who, when they met people like Lahontan and Montaigne, said, guess what? 
your guys' ideas are dumb, and here's why. This makes the Enlightenment, first, an argument over the ideas that some American Indians had, and then second, the defeat of those ideas, simply by the assumption that the Europeans were right because they could not deal with the fact that they had been told that they were wrong. I am totally convinced by this. The Enlightenment was definitely an aftershock of meeting people in the Americas, and I am convinced, having read a lot of Montaigne, that these ideas came into the European tradition from the Americas. Do you understand what this means for the history of ideas? All of a sudden, it's not Europe who started us thinking about different forms of government, who started us down the revolutionary path that led to the French and American revolutions and ultimately to the world we now live in. Those ideas came from the Americas, and they were eventually defeated by a hierarchical, authoritarian European model drawn from the Romans because the people living in the Enlightenment age of Europe simply could not accept that these ideas came from, quote, savages. So why haven't you heard about this? Well, Graeber and Wingrove talk about this as well. There is a huge taboo in saying that the savages lived a better life than us. Anytime you try and say that, you're told that you're infantilizing them. This is called the, quote, noble savage idea. Actually, there's no difference between societies. But that's obviously not true. We can prefer some societies to other societies. And if you do not prefer the society that Condé Ronk describes to the society that Lahontan lived in, then I think you are crazy. Is it nobler? Yes. Are they savages? No. If you can look at France and say, you know what? There's things they do in France that I think are better than the things they do in America. Then you can look at 16th century people in the Americas and say, you know what? I would rather have their life than our life. So that's the indigenous critique. First, that European authoritarian hierarchical commercial life sucks. That is the origin of the Enlightenment. And second, that this idea came not from some sort of abstract thinking about the Americas, which is the standard view, but because some Americans said, hey, guess what? Your European life sucks. And yes, Graeber and Wincrow call the people who lived in what we now call the Americas Americans. I love it. It's delightful. So the next thing is the three basic freedoms. I'm actually not going to quote Graeber and Wingrow from this. I'm going to quote uh, William Derizowitz, who wrote the review of this book for The Atlantic. The three basic freedoms are the freedom to disobey, the freedom to go somewhere else, and the freedom to create new social arrangements. These sound like good freedoms. I think you want them. And if you live in a, quote, liberal democracy like America, you might even believe that you have them. But you don't. Graeber and Wingrow argue that except for places where these powerful and frankly bad states pop up, like ancient Rome or the Aztec empires, pretty much all humans have these freedoms. 
Now we live in the free world. But in fact, we have lost the freedoms that most people living 10,000 years ago had. Here's Graeber and Wingrow. The freedoms which form the moral basis of a nation like the United States are largely formal freedoms. American citizens have the right to travel wherever they like, provided, of course, they have the money for transport and accommodation. They are free from ever having to obey the arbitrary orders of superiors, unless, of course, they have to get a job. In this sense, it is almost possible to say the Windat had play chiefs and real freedoms, while most of us today have to make do with real chiefs and play freedoms. Or to put the matter more technically, what the Hadza, Windat, or egalitarian people such as the Noor seem to have been concerned with were not so much formal freedoms as substantive ones. They were less interested in the right to travel than in the possibility of actually doing so. Hence, the matter was typically framed as an obligation to provide hospitality to strangers. Mutual aid, what contemporary European observers often referred to as communism, was seen as the necessary condition for individual autonomy. So you think you're free because you can go wherever you like. No one's going to stop you. Well, for almost all of human history, no one was going to stop you. The only reason why that makes you free now is because lots of hierarchical states do try to stop people. But you can't actually go where you want to because there's no bed there for you unless you have money. Back in the day, in this primordial past that was supposedly filled with savages, there was a commitment in most societies to provide hospitality to strangers. And in fact, anarchists still do this. I have friends who have been able to move to new cities and stay in anarchist communes before they can actually afford to live in that city. So you are still free to move if you're an anarchist. Okay, back to the three freedoms. Graeber and Wincrow argued that the third freedom, the freedom to imagine a different world, to form new social arrangements, stems from the first two. And this takes us back to those primitive people, those savages, sauvages, these traditional societies. What all those words have in common is that they haven't actually thought about their social arrangements. They're just beautiful, beautiful wildflowers, if you're Rousseau, or noxious, horrible, murderous weeds, if you're Hobbes. But either way, they didn't make themselves. They were just born out of nature. They just are. This obviously is bullshit, and yet it's still how we talk about these people. By the way, Graeber and Wingrove point out that many of them call themselves, quote, free peoples. So at the risks of being uh, described as subscribing to the noble savage idea, I may start trying to use the phrase free peoples instead of saying indigenous societies or traditional civilizations. Going back to that mutual aid, that communism that made these freedoms actually work, here's an idea that completely blew me away when I read it in this book. When you go back to that Rousseau-Hobbes narrative and just standard Western thinking about the evolution of culture, we have, like I said, this thing called civilization. It's that farming, writing, cities, famine, slavery, patriarchy, etc. So that means you gain farming, but you lose the three basic freedoms. And then maybe 5,000 years later, you can get some of them back with some lawyers and the Declaration of Independence. But that's not true. If you have mutual aid, if you have a commitment to making sure people can disobey the local boss, and if they really dislike the local boss, they can just walk away. Well, you can have bosses, you can have organization with cities and farming, 
without any top-down hierarchy that demands you give up those basic freedoms. And Graeber and Wingrove suggest that rather than cities and farming and rules, free peoples have a different definition of civilization. And civilization is mutual aid, aka anarcho-communism. Here's the quote. One problem is that we've come to assume that civilization refers in origin simply to the habit of living in cities. Cities in turn were thought to imply states. But as we've seen, that is not the case historically or even etymologically. The word civilization derives from Latin civilis, which actually refers to those qualities of political wisdom and mutual aid that permit societies to organize themselves through voluntary coalition. In other words, civilization originally meant the type of qualities exhibited by Andean Alu associations or Basque villages, rather than Inca courtiers or Shang dynasts. If mutual aid, social cooperation, civic activism, hospitality, or simply caring for others are the kind of things that really go to make civilizations, then this true history of civilization is only just starting to be written. Okay, wow, this takes us back to the indigenous critique. Civilization means mutual aid. And that's even a Roman word, Latin. Some of the founders of, quote, Western civilization came up with this word, which meant caring for one another. We have turned this completely on its head. Civilization means cities and farming. And once you have those, you just have to give up mutual aid and turn to bureaucracies and state violence. This is one of those classic justifications for imperialism. We have to civilize these savages so they can have good things. Like poverty and slums and crime and police. And to do that, we'll use military force to destroy their society until they're ready to be civilized. I don't think it's that shocking now to think that the real savages are the bureaucracies of colonialism. But what shocked me was thinking about how the freedoms that we're slowly hoping to get through the forces of progress were just assumed to be valid for almost all people. The three basic freedoms are, Graeber and Wingrow argue, pretty much fundamental to civilization. Civilization isn't cities and farming, which in fact you can have without having bureaucracy and slavery. Civilization is communities working together. This means that all of Western, quote, civilization has actually lost civilization and descended into savagery which is what Montaigne said as well. Okay, third takeaway. How did we lose these basic freedoms? From domination. So the three freedoms is the second big takeaway from the dawn of everything. The first big takeaway is the idea that all of the explanations of how we got our current system are comically oversimplified and uh, prevent you from fixing it. It doesn't matter whether you're Hobbes or Rousseau, you're just stuck with the state system and something like the US or UK government or Germany or Japan is as good as you'll ever get. But how did we get that state? Well, according to this narrative, you know, first there was hunter-gathering and then there was farming and then the state. But actually the state formed a bunch of times in history and it also fell apart a bunch of times in history and very, very rarely 
Did it ever make it to the level of advancement as we have it right now? Graeber and Wingrow suggest that what we call the state is actually three traditions of domination or exploitation or power hoarding coming together. We call it a, quote, true state when it has all three systems of domination. But that's just because we are obsessed with finding things that look exactly like how we live right now. Most of the things that look kind of like states have had only one of those three systems, and most people have lived under one or honestly zero of those forms of domination for most of the existence of humanity. It's just us unlucky bastards after the age of European imperialism that not only have to live under all three systems of domination, but are also told that we're not allowed to imagine an alternative. So let's get to the quotes. Perhaps the first to attempt a systematic definition of the state was a German philosopher named Rudolf von Eyring, who in the late 19th century proposed that a state should be defined as any institution that claims a monopoly on the legitimate use of coercive force within a given territory. This definition has since come to be identified with the sociologist Max Weber. On this definition, a government is a state if it lays claim to a certain stretch of land and insists that, within its borders, it is the only institution whose agents can kill people, beat them up, cut off parts of their body, or lock them in cages. Or, as von Eyring emphasized, that can decide who else has the right to do so on its behalf. Von Eyring's definition worked fairly well for modern states. However, it soon became clear that for most of human history, rulers either didn't make such grandiose claims, or if they did, their claims to a monopoly on coercive force held about the same status as their claims to control the tides or the weather. To retain von Eyring and Weber's definition, one would either have to conclude that, say, Hammurabi's Babylon, Socrates' Athens, or England under William the Conqueror weren't states at all or come up with a more flexible or nuanced definition. Okay, so what we've learned in this quote is that this modern definition of a state fits almost nothing in human history. So either states are some new, weird, and probably kind of dumb thing, or this is a bad definition. Graeber and Wingro kind of argue both. We've got these two problems. Maybe it's the same problem from the different angles. First, the Eyring-Weber definition is inadequate to our current understanding of the state. It's more complicated than just violence in a territory. Second, most powerful rulers in the past didn't actually control violence in a set territory, and yet a lot of them still had a lot of control. So this definition is too much and not enough. That's where these three forms of domination come in. Graeber and Wingrow argue that there's not actually a thing called the state, Shout out to John Dewey, the state is pure myth. But there are these practices of domination. And right now the ideal is to have all three of these practices, but previous states didn't always or even usually have all three. So what are the three? They are violence, charisma, and knowledge. Those are the three techniques of domination, violence, charisma, and knowledge. Violence is the obvious one, it's the one we just talked about. If you do things the government doesn't like, the cops come. If you disobey them, they shoot you. The second one, charisma, is often called politics. Why should you vote for this person to be president? Everything from she's a great speaker to he's someone I'd like to have a beer with is charisma. Graeber and Wingrow suggest that electoral politics itself, voting, is nothing but a popularity contest. The third is knowledge. If you want a job in the government or at a corporation, you need a degree, preferably from Harvard. 
What if you majored in zoology? Doesn't matter. It's not knowledge that we're looking for in this form of domination. It's ownership of knowledge, a claim to knowledge that other people don't have. Knowledge is power. Not because knowing things helps you, but because you can say to people, you have to listen to me, I went to Harvard. Here's Graeber and Wingrow. We would like to suggest that these three principles, call them control of violence, control of information, and individual charisma, are also the three possible bases of social power. The threat of violence tends to be the most dependable, which is why it has become the basis for uniform systems of law everywhere. Charisma tends to be the most ephemeral. Usually all three coexist to some degree. Even in societies where interpersonal violence is rare, one may well find hierarchies based on knowledge. It doesn't even particularly matter what the knowledge is about. Maybe some sort of technical know-how, say of smelting copper or using herbal medicines, or maybe something we consider total mumbo-jumbo, the names of the 27 hells and 39 heavens. Okay, so there it is. Those are the three from Greyburn Windgrow. Why should X person be in charge? Either they control violence or are deserving of controlling violence. They're a soldier or a warlord or maybe just a prosecutor. Or they are charismatic. They are particularly handsome or good at sports or wear nice clothes. Or they have the right knowledge. They are a, quote, policy expert or have a PhD in management or... They went to Harvard and then Oxford and then worked as a consultant at McKinsey and know enough about wine to have events in a wine cave. I hope you can see that this stuff still exists in U.S. politics. The ideal leader in the U.S., or perhaps ruler, is a charming, highly educated person who has experience dispensing violence, like, say, threatening to arrest a mom for not sending her kid to school. None of these characteristics actually make someone a good leader. But that's how, historically, dominance, not leadership, has been given to people. And we haven't entered some special new era where we pick good leaders for the correct qualities. We do dominance just like everyone else. Except in most societies, people could use the three freedoms to back out of the dominance if they didn't like it. We don't have that anymore. Graeber and Wingrove provided tons and tons of examples of first-order systems, where charisma, violence, or knowledge are the only way that dominance works. Second-order systems, where two of the three systems of dominance operate. They don't spend that much time on third-order systems, which makes sense because we are all experts on third-order systems. I'm not going to quote much, and I still think you should probably read the whole book, but now you've got a taste of how those systems work. And since we are used to third-order systems with knowledge bureaucracies, charismatic politicians, and violent oppression all mixed together, systems with just one sound weird to us. But they were all over the place, and they're not as unfamiliar as you might think. Here's a quote. The Natchez great son might not have had the grandeur of Louis XIV, but what he lacked in that regard he appeared to make up for in terms of sheer personal power. French observers were particularly struck by the arbitrary executions of Natchez subjects, the property confiscations, and the way in which, at royal funerals, court retainers would, often, apparently, quite willingly, offer themselves up to be strangled to accompany the great son. One paradoxical outcome of these arrangements was that, for most of the year, the great village was largely depopulated. As noted by another observer, 
Father Pierre de Charlevoix, the great village of the Natchez is at present reduced to a very few cabins. The reason which I heard for this is that the savages, for whom the great chief has the right to take all they have, get as far away from him as they can, and therefore many villages of this nation have been formed at some distance from this. <laughs> okay, back to Graber and Wingrove. Away from the great village, ordinary Natchez appear to have led very different lives, often showing blissful disregard for the wishes of their ostensible rulers. They conducted their own independent commercial and military ventures, and sometimes flatly refused royal commands conveyed by the great son's emissaries or relatives. Continuing the quote, The problem with this sort of power, at least from the sovereign's vantage point, is that it tends to be intensely personal. It is almost impossible to delegate. The king's sovereignty extends about as far as the king himself can walk, reach, see, or be carried. Within that circle, it is absolute. Outside it, it attenuates rapidly. As a result, in the absence of an administrative system, and the Natchez king had only a handful of assistants, claims to labor, tribute, or obedience could, if considered odious, simply be ignored. Even the absolutist monarchs of the Renaissance, like Henry VIII or Louis XIV, had a great deal of trouble delegating their authority. That is, convincing their subjects to treat royal representatives as deserving anything like the same deference and obedience due to the king himself. Okay, I love the story. I'd never heard of anything like it. So there's violence. The, the great son has absolute violence. He can order anyone killed. But he doesn't have a bureaucracy of knowledge. He doesn't have a grand vizier to carry his violence throughout the realm. And he doesn't have any special claim to greatness. He's just the king. And if you don't want to be killed by the king, you just, you know, don't go near the king. I'm not going to push any more quotes on you on this topic, but I'll tell you about the other first order structures. In lots of his places historically, the leader has been followed not because he can kill you and not because he has special knowledge, but because he's a hero. Obviously, he can be a hero by like doing daring raids on another village. But he can also be a hero by being really good at basketball. And as you may have heard, there were entire South American regimes that really focused on a version of basketball as the key to being a leader. I mean, you can't argue with that, can you? Obviously, this guy is good at basketball, so he should be in charge of something. Now, you're probably thinking this is ridiculous, but Michael Jordan is a billionaire. And LeBron James is either a billionaire or heading there soon. And money is simply power over other people. So you have made Jordan a ruler, a boss. You have given him dominance just because he was good at basketball. The other one is knowledge, and that may seem a little more intuitive to you, but remember, it doesn't actually have to be useful knowledge. Esoteric knowledge. Knowledge that is in some way hidden from regular people. This is why we elect lawyers to Congress. Congress makes laws, and lawyers know about laws. But Graeber and Wingrow think something else is going on. This is about the people who know the deep secrets of the universe. Those people should be in charge. You could think of a shaman at a village or an oracle in Greece. Those people are really good at telling you what the stars say. Does that have anything to do with knowing how to run things? It doesn't. It's just knowledge is power. Another famous example is the Confucian bureaucrats in ancient China, sometimes called the first meritocracy. They know classical Chinese culture really well. So now they're in charge. Does that mean they're good at ensuring the rice harvest is handled well? Absolutely not. But they're in charge. Why? They have the special knowledge. 
This is another one that you might think is ridiculous, but you are constantly nodding along when someone says they have a PhD. Do you know anything about their PhD? Do you know that they learned anything valuable in their PhD? I've known some people who didn't, but I mean, they have the special knowledge. It's sacred knowledge. Saying that people with PhDs shouldn't have power is like saying that people who play basketball shouldn't make tens of millions of dollars. How absurd. Okay. <laughs> I hope you enjoyed that. I'm going to stop there. I could go on forever. I had a whole other section, but I cut it off. This is long enough. Let me do a recap and then my final perspective. Here are the really big takeaways. First is the way that states developed evolutionary and how our current system was a response to the indigenous critique. Hobbes says states are good. Rousseau says states are bad. We think they're disagreeing, but they agree on the key thing. States developed out of history, evolutionarily, once farming happened, they replaced primitive or savage forms of civilization, and there's no going back. Not only is all of this not true, but Graeber and Wingrow make a great case that this idea was developed not by sitting around and thinking about it, but because American intellectuals said to them, you guys are wrong, so they had to figure out a way to answer that. So the march to enlightened civilization is really just a narrative created to say to Americans, nuh-uh, you're wrong because you guys are savages. Okay, number two, the three freedoms. This is the idea that for most of human history, people were free to leave their communities, defy orders, and imagine new social systems. The reason we've lost those freedoms is because we believe Hobbes and Rousseau and the evolutionary march to state government. Those freedoms were given up in the march of progress. You can't have them back. That would be anarchy. So you just need to sit down at your desk or your school desk or in your cubicle, or in your prison cell, or at your factory bench, and do what you're told. It's for your own good. Otherwise, you're primitive. I'll come back to this one in a second. The third one is the one we just talked about, the different forms of domination. What we call the state is a blending of these three forms of domination, charisma, esoteric knowledge, and violence. That's how you get someone like Barack Obama, educated at the Ivy League, very charismatic, and very good at sending predator drones to kill people all over the world. Most humans in history lived with none or only one of these forms of domination. And thus, accepting the domination wasn't as bad if it was only one, and it was also pretty easier to fix it when people decided to because of the three freedoms. That's the part we just did. Those three freedoms are what allowed you to resist domination. Okay, so what's the point of this book? besides the fact that it pretty convincingly overturns most of the history of human history. Let me tell you why I think it is even more than that. First, everything sucks right now. It's awful. We need a new way of thinking and being in the world. But when you try to do this, you're told you're crazy. Anarchism is a synonym for crazy weirdos who won't accept the harsh truths of the world. Civilization exists. That's how we get iPhones. Deal with it. So now we need to imagine a different future, but we're told we're not allowed to. So step one is to say this narrative of progress from savagery to civilization is a lie. No more being told that this was inevitable. It wasn't. But once we've done that, next step, 
The second thing is to recognize all the domination in our lives. You are dominated all the time by charisma, violence, and knowledge. You feel like you don't have a choice, but those systems of domination have had ebbs and flows. They had to be invented at one time. They actually got invented a bunch of times, and most of the time they were destroyed. So when we imagine a new world, we need to imagine it without that domination. And in fact, we don't even need to imagine it. We can simply remember it. Finally, the three freedoms. We absolutely need those three freedoms. In fact, we even claim that we have them. Graeber and Wingrow argue that the third freedom, the freedom to imagine a new world, comes after the other two. You can imagine a new, so a new world, a new set of social arrangements, but not really if you have to follow orders and can't leave. So, here's our mission. First, we have to imagine a new world, but a pretty basic one. It just needs to be a world in which people can defy orders and move freely. As you've heard me say before, a universal basic income does this. And then if we have a universal basic income, we'll basically be back at zero. We won't really have a version of a new world. It will just be the world where most people in the 21st century have the same basic freedoms that almost all humans in human history have had. But then we can build something better. If we can imagine a world in which we get those first two freedoms back, we can then imagine our utopia. That's the project. Okay, that's it for me on this book for now. I do intend to bring plenty of people onto the show to discuss it further, especially archaeologists who will allow us to look more closely at the examples that Graeber and Wingrow provide. I do need to remind you, as always, that this show has no support except for your support. No ads, no sponsors, no grants, no paywall nothing but your generosity. So if you can, please go to everydayanarchism.com and give to keep the show alive. If you can't give, you can leave a rating of the show on Spotify or Apple Podcasts. That will help me grow. I love questions or comments. You can send those to everydayanarchismpodcast at gmail.com. And all that's left to say is that the music, which you're about to hear, is by David Hill.